0: Hello and welcome to Beyond the Page, a Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds, and today I'm talking with Christopher J.H. Wright, the author of Here Are Your Gods, Faithful Discipleship in Idolatrous Times. Uh, Dr. Wright, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Josh. It's good to be with you.
0: Now, just to start, can you give the listeners a sort of summary of what this book is about and how it came to be?
1: Well, it's basically a book about trying to identify, uh, first of all, what the Bible has to say about idolatry and gods, because many people aren't aware of of how much is there and and why it matters. Uh, And secondly, it's about how we can discern and identify the fact that uh, we still live with false gods and idols all around us, not not just in, as as it were, people of other faiths in other parts of the world, but very much even within Western culture, and indeed within Western Christianity. So it's an attempt really to bring together uh, biblical teaching about what idols are and, uh, and how they relate to the the only true living God and how they impact and affect our culture. And it arose really from two sources. One was that the first part of the book uh, is in some ways a, a reprocessing of a chapter in an older book that I wrote called The Mission of God uh, on a biblical missiology, and the second and third half parts of the book really come from uh, some uh, a lecture that I gave, in fact, while I was in the States in 2017, it would have been, and uh, on the issues of how we are to maintain a faithful discipleship in a culture in the West, in the Western world, which is showing lots of signs of, uh, of idolatry within it. So that, that those are the origins, really, of the book.
0: Mm-hmm. The, the first part of your book is very careful in how it defines, how it gives a definition of other gods. Uh, When we look at the Hebrew scriptures, it records Yahweh saying, you know, you shall have no other gods before me. And the skeptic looks at that and says, aha, so there's an an admission here that there are other gods. Uh, How did the ancient Hebrew view Yahweh, their covenant god, amid the polytheistic culture of the ancient Near East?
1: Well, I think it depends a little bit whether you ask the average Israelite at any particular time in Israel's story, as the Old Testament shows us, or whether we're talking about the canonical faith of Israel as revealed by God and then uh, embodied within the Scriptures. I mean, the Old Testament makes no... uh, Well, it's embarrassed about it, but it doesn't hold back at all in saying that uh, the average Israelites for many centuries continued to mix their worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel, with going after other gods, the gods of the people around them, particularly the gods of Canaan, but then later on um, also in, as we incorporating the gods of Assyria or the gods of Babylon. But when, in, in my view, when we look at the very earliest um, documents within the Old Testament, we can see that the, the revealed faith was that what God was seeking to teach them was that there really is only one true God, and that is Yahweh. It's not just that there's only one God, as if it was a kind of philosophical axiom, but rather uh, that Yahweh alone is God in heaven above and in the earth beneath, quoting directly from Deuteronomy, and there is no other. And it's hard to see where else there is to be God in, if Yahweh is the God of all creation and in all creation. So I think there is a, a, a monotheistic Yahweh-only thrust from the earliest time in Israel, but it did get overlaid with um, the fact that the, the Israelites... You know, went after other gods. The point that some of those Old Testament scholars want to make, and I think um, in some ways they are not only mistaken but somewhat uh, patronizing, if I can say, is that even to talk about other gods, as in the verse you quoted, you know, um, you shall have no other gods or even referring to other gods, assumes that they exist in the same way that Yahweh exists. But of course, even in our modern way of speaking, that would be nonsense. It would mean that, for example, I would not be able to even talk about, let's say, the gods that are worshipped in India uh, and and discuss or talk about the gods of uh, of Hinduism without somebody telling you, oh, you're, you're, you're talking about those gods, you're even giving them names, you know, Ram and Krishna and Ganesh and so on, you must believe that they exist. Well, no, I'm talking about the phenomenon, the the empirical fact that people do claim to worship uh, these gods. That doesn't mean that I believe that they are realities in anything like the way we speak about the living God as a reality. Um, So even the Apostle Paul was able to make that distinction, wasn't he, in 1 Corinthians 8, when he says that uh, there are many so-called gods and lords. Uh, He could see them all around in the city of Corinth. There were temples with statues in them. So yes, uh, there are many so-called gods and lords, but we know, he says, that there is only one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. So it's, a, it's an important distinction, I think, that the Bible makes.
0: Mm-hmm. It's an important apologetic that remains today for how we speak to those of other faiths regarding those other gods. Um, it, you know, I, I think it, it changes if we if we have the viewpoint of. Um, these these gods don't exist. We won't even there there's like if all you say is well my god is the one true god end of story. Uh, there's not as much of a conversation to be had about the nature of those other gods or how the the Christian uh, Judeo Christian conception of God is different than surrounding cultures surrounding nations throughout the centuries.
1: Yes, that's true. I mean, I think it it, it is important in any interfaith dialogue to uh, respect and and be be sensitive and careful in the way one speaks about uh, the gods of other faith in terms of what uh, is both believed and is very precious uh, emotionally and spiritually to to people who who worship them. I mean, it it fascinates me that in in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, We know that the Apostle Paul clearly preached, uh, and his enemy said that he was preaching that there is no God but one, uh, and that these uh, others are false gods. But um, the the civic authorities in Ephesus uh, were very clear that um, Paul, he says, he he actually says about Paul and his companions, that they have neither robbed our temple nor uh, attacked our goddess. They haven't as it were, been bad-mouthing Diana of Artemis. So they weren't going out of their way to be offensive. They were simply uh, presenting the arguments for the the one living God. Uh, And in several places you have that where Paul argues that, uh, you know, there is this one God and let me me tell you about him, rather than going out of his way to be offensive in relation to other gods. So I, I think we need to have both the theological convictions of the Bible but also the the pastoral and uh, sensitive and evangelistic wisdom in how we uh, relate to people of other faiths. And actually, to be honest, my book is not about the gods of other religions. (laughs) My book is about the idols and gods that reside within Western culture and which Western Christians are also very easily seduced by and then become a kind of syncretistic mixture of the worship of the God of the Bible, the God, the, the God that we worship as Christians, but alongside many other idols that, that, that stand alongside him, which of course was exactly what was happening in Israel. The big accusation of the prophets was that it was the people of God who were going after the idols, uh, not the other nations around them. In a sense, that's what you'd expect. <laughs> they, they don't know the living God yet, and so they're worshiping these other gods. But when the people who do know the living God, or claim to, uh, worship idols and of the culture and the peoples around them. That is what the Bible attacks. And in a sense, that was what I was trying to get at a little bit more in my book.
0: Mm-hmm. The, the setup that you give by by giving us the context of the Old Testament and um, the context of ancient Near East uh, theology is very helpful because people in modern times, modern Christians, we, we kind of have a way of looking back on that, and, and being very dismissive, like, oh, you know, ignorant ancient people, they didn't know any better. And then we go out and we do very much the same thing with not things that we would not call idols, we would not call our gods, but we treat them in the same fashion, in the same manner. So it helps tie the two together, I think, to say that we have lapsed into the same problems and we run after the same idols we don't call them Baal, uh, but we run after the same things that Baal was to thought to give the canaanites
1: um, yeah that's 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 quite a good way of putting it I, I mean the if you look at the old testament obviously they the, the israelites wanted to say yes we, we're the people of yahweh he, he's our god you know he brought us out of egypt uh he's um he gives us three weeks holiday a year with the festivals and a day off a week, you know, the Sabbath day, he's a great god in battles because he tends to win, uh, you know, so they, they didn't want to reject Yahweh, but they looked around and it was just as if they were saying, well, Baal seems to be the god of fertility, of uh, crops, of uh, your cattle giving birth, of your wife giving birth and having lots of children, he's the god of business deals, he's the god of the land, he seems to be the god of just about everything in everyday life that seems to matter, and so, uh, as it were, you can have Yahweh on the Sabbath, but for the rest of the week, uh, really, you need to, you know, please Baal um, and have sex with the prostitutes in a Baal temple and make sure things are going smoothly, and that's that's precisely the kind of uh, compromised faith that is so easy also to fall into in, in any culture. I mean, it's, it's not just in the West, but in any culture. Uh, where you want to claim that the God you, you have the biblical God, but during the week or at work or in business or in national politics uh, or in your own political opinions, or in order to get security for your family and so on, then uh, you're looking at um, money and insurance and protection and wealth and you know there's so many ways in which we put things that we put our trust in, and, and the first part of my book is trying to analyze the way the Old Testament shows what do human beings make into gods, and we tend to make gods out of things that we fear, or things that we are dazzled by, that we, that we, we think are fantastic, uh, like celebrity uh, and um, you know weapons and armaments and all that kind of thing. We, we idolize things that either give us fear or give us security, or that in some sense we feel are providing uh, for all that we need. And and that, again, was what Yahweh had to fight against among the Israelites, that they were attributing to Baal things that actually they were receiving from Yahweh.
0: Mm -hmm. Bringing this into modern day uh, really sets it within the context of our political system. Uh, our politicians uh, well I'm I, I speak more for the United States than the United Kingdom uh, our politicians have become celebrities um, or our celebrities have become politicians um, the every every area of this if it's you know security uh, we do anything for national security here in the United States you know we spend seven hundred billion dollars plus on our military um, we forego any number of liberties in the name of national security. Um, there is a lot that is done in the political sphere to help bring about or try to bring about that that sense of financial success, uh, that sense of safety, that sense of, of feeling like one holds power or control, so the the worship of Old Testament gods and our worship of the New Testament and the modern equivalent sort of finds its home in the political atmosphere. And you, you talk a, a lot about political idolatry. Um, how and what areas do you see our politics and our theology sort of intertwining to set up these false idols
1: yeah well josh in some ways you've already in some degree answered your own question yes but uh, i um i mean i i'm british of course and i do you know hesitate to comment too much on the politics of other people's nations i think that's it's important to sort of just to say that uh that i try to be careful it does strike me just a little ironic that you know you as you say um A nation like the United States spends billions and billions upon its national security, but its motto on its dollar bills is, In God we trust. (laughs) Um, It has one nation under God. So there's, in a sense, a a certain disconnect between the claimed nation that puts its faith in God, so to speak, and yet feels that it must also put its faith uh, in this vast military expenditure. Now, um, I'm not... uh, I'm not a 100% pacifist, so I'm not suggesting that there is no place for uh, proper uh, modes of prudence and of self-defense. And, you know, I'm not naive in that sense. Uh, but I do think there is an element in which uh, nations can be seduced into thinking that uh, vast expenditure on, on military things can somehow give them security when, uh, to be honest, in, in recent events it hasn't. Uh, And then even though we have all that military, we can be thrown completely out of kilter by a virus, which (laughs) um, we can't even see. So uh, sometimes there is a a big ironic contrast between what we're trying to put our faith in and claim will give us security and, and, and the realities of the situation. Another thing I'd want to say, though, is we need to be careful here that I'm not trying to suggest that a nation like the United States, or my own here in the United Kingdom, is in any sense, you know a Christian nation in the sense of being in the same theological space as Israel of the Old Testament. Um, that would be a, a, a wrong deduction. What I do try to say in my book and other books I've written is that the Old Testament provides us with uh, the criteria by which God judges all nations, not not just his own nation, mm-hmm. so that there are principles. And paradigms and patterns of what does God require of rulers? What is God's demand for justice in society and so on? And, and that is something which is, uh, you know, books like uh, Proverbs and the Prophets and, and other places show is not just for Israel only, but is God's concern for the whole human race. So therefore, it seems to me that we can take some of what God said to Israel, which were supposed to be a light to the nations and which God had called in Abraham to become a blessing to the nations, and say, if if the scriptures show us both God's demands on human authorities, political authorities, and also shows us the idols that politics often goes after, then these are things that we can set alongside what we might call secular politics in our nations and say, well, look, uh, if God is consistent, then these must be things that God still disapproves of or wants to expose. These must be the ways in which God wishes politicians and governments and presidents and prime ministers to work and operate. And where they aren't, then I think the Church has a role to to step into the prophetic place where the prophets in the old testament did in fact confront political authorities and said look this is exactly where you guys are failing you are not behaving as god requires and you're going after the idols of of this and that and the other including international alliances and finding your security and everything else except in god and and then they bring that critique so it's more on that Argument by analogy and by example and paradigm that i'm I'm making the case rather than in any sense suggesting that somehow um, even a politician who claims to be a Christian is somehow in the place of a king of Israel in the Old testament.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think we we look to the Old Testament, and a fair amount of prophecy uh, is dedicated not to the judgment of Israel and Judah, although it is obvi- definitely there. Uh, but judgment of the surrounding nations as well—that God, as um, it, God, is sovereign over all these other nations, whether they worship Him or not, or not. Uh, whether He is the covenant God the covenant. of them or not. And um, a couple of years ago, I I went on like a, a year-long study of the book of Amos, and it really changed a lot of how I viewed the intersection of theology and politics, to see how especially the oracles of amos at the very beginning the first few chapters of the book uh, on how the surrounding nations are called out for their sins one by one by one by one and you have to imagine that as amos is preaching these messages of judgment to the surrounding nations that israel and judah are excited because the nations that (laughs) are surrounding them are finally going to be judged and then you get to the you know it's circling around and around and around and around and you get to to israel and judah and Yahweh saves the strongest judgments for them and to say they I put you in the center of all of this to be the light of the world to be the city on the hill to use New Testament metaphors Mm -hmm. Um, I put you here in the center of all this you are also responsible for the sins of these nations because you did not uphold your own covenant Uh, you you are not that change that we were that you were supposed to see Uh, And that that really made me change how I thought about how involved and and the way in which a Christian should be involved in politics and to say that, um, you know, God is a God of judgment. And um, I've seen, um, obviously, the United States had a very rather important election uh, Mm -hmm. on on 10 days ago. So Tuesday before last. And we're still we're still counting the votes. It's it's. I don't know how it's – we we know how it should turn out. Um, I don't know what legal challenges will present itself uh, until the results are certified and the electoral college votes and all the other idiosyncrasies of American politics yeah. has to happen. Um, but yeah, the day after, so many of my Christian friends on social media were saying various versions of, well, whatever happens, God is still on the throne. And you know, I just wanted to be like, yes, but you understand he's a god of judgment, right? Like you mm-hmm. understand, yeah. you understand that he can be on his throne, and that you know, that that that's not necessarily meaning that that whoever becomes president is a blessing from God, or you know, God could ordain this person to be president for our judgment and not for our blessing.
1: It's interesting you should say that because uh, that's actually what um, John Calvin more or less did say (laughs) on the basis of Old Testament, that when God puts the nations under judgment, he gives them fully sure wicked rulers, uh, that that the the, uh, wickedness of of rulers can in fact um, hasten um, the the collapse of a nation or an empire uh, or a civilization. We see that as, as running right through the Old Testament is the story of the rise and fall of empires God raises them up, and they become arrogant and proud and rebel against him uh, in one way or another, mainly by doing injustice, and then God brings them down. It's interesting, you did mention the oracles against the nations in the book of Amos, and I agree with you on that, that what, what Amos was doing effectively was putting a noose around the neck of Israel and Judah uh, in a kind of circular way, um, but it's also clear, say, from the oracles against Babylon, and Tyre and Egypt that you find in the major prophets, uh, uh, all all those great military or trading nations. I mean, Babylon ruled the the nations by military power, Tyre ruled the waves by economic power. Um, And in both cases, God deems them to have Exalted themselves to virtually a position of blasphemous arrogance. You know, you say, "I am. I will never be a widow." You know, says says the king of Egypt and the king of Babylon. Uh, and God says, "No, that's that's not the way it is. You are human, and you will fall." There is there is, in a sense, a terminus to all uh, arrogant human authority. I, as I argue in my book, my own feeling is that we are now approaching that in. Western culture in general i 'm not just talking about the United States or Britain, but I think the great western The great Western enterprise has been going on now for about five hundred years since Europeans just decided to go abroad. you know we, we, <laughs> around about fourteen hundred or so we just decided to export ourselves all around the world we didn 't ask anybody 's permission at that point. Europe was a very poor continent. Uh, I mean we need to relativize ourselves and realize that five hundred years ago. Uh, There were empires in Africa and in Asia and in Latin America that were far, far wealthier and more civilized and prosperous than Europe. But we, we, we exported ourselves, we colonized, we enslaved, we exterminated, and we planted ourselves. And... That of course has had enormous mixed benefits, you know, there have been good things of God has used that, um, partly for the advance of the gospel in the long term through, you know, missionary outreach and so on. So one needs to look at the ambiguity of all empire and all cultures that because human beings are made in the image of God, when we do stuff in the world, it will always have an element of that which is positive and good and of the image of God, inevitably, uh, but there will also be that which recognises our fallenness and and the basically the satanic deception that, that lies within all empire and power. So, Western civilization in that sense has manifested both of those elements i think just like the roman empire did there was good and there was terrible evil there were benefits and there was awful idolatry and oppression and the same has been true of western civilization so i think there comes a time in which god says look if you'd only read the bible you would see that the time comes when god says enough is enough uh, and he gives up he, he gives us up as it were as romans one puts it mm-hmm. uh, to the consequences of our own sin There's something of that, I think, happening in in Western culture these days Um, um, which doesn't stop us praying, which doesn't stop us saying, as your friends are saying, oh, God is sovereign. But God being sovereign doesn't mean, therefore, he's going to just do everything we want to happen because we'd like this or that to happen. It it, it means God is sovereign in the same way that Revelation chapter 1 says, that Jesus says in Revelation 1, that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. So that sense of God's sovereignty is not just an Old Testament idea, you know, that God was sovereign over the kings of Israel, but it's also a New Testament affirmation that Jesus is Lord. He's kurios, not Caesar. Um, Caesar is Lord, and you have to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and you have to uh, respect the emperor, as as Peter says, honor the emperor, but fear God. God is on the throne, uh, and Jesus is the ultimate ruler. And therefore, Christians seems to me, need to ask themselves whether they are taking their politics and the political opinions uh, from the Christ of the cross, the kingdom of God, of the crucified one, or whether they're still taking their politics more from the kind of Christendom that stems from Constantine and the, 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 the kind of arrogance of a sort of Christ, a so-called Christian rule or that we will impose our will. Um, I think we need to be very careful on how our politics works out. Uh, in biblical
0: terms. In in the book, you talk about the characteristics of the nation that God warns. Uh, The the, the nation that God has warned is nearing judgment, and some of the the characteristics that you highlight are historic and systemic violence, increasing poverty and inequality, forms of uh, populism and nationalism, ecological devastation, and a war on truth. When I look at the United States today, Christians in the United States, and I'm, I'm thinking specifically of white evangelical Christians, our history is sort of one of defending those things, of downplaying historic violence from slavery and uh, in, in the uh, genocide of indigenous peoples, of downplaying systemic violence in terms of police brutality against our black brothers and sisters uh, of downplaying increasing poverty and inequality and instead championing capitalism of enjoying populism and nationalism and really combining the uh, flag of the nation with the, the, the church downplaying ecological devastation in um, global warming. And even now a war on truth on, on really, not adhering to certain tenets of objective truth how i I know that you speak as a as sort of an outsider to the american white evangelical church but i'm like point by point i feel like we've gotten it 180 degrees wrong where do you think that started and what do we need to do to begin rounding that corner and get back to the gospel
1: Josh, you're asking me a a very difficult question because, (laughs) as you rightly say, um, I'm I'm British. And um, in some ways, you have expressed what you've expressed and there's many parts of me which would want to agree. um, Mm. But I I really don't want to sort of Mm. go into detail on how I would, uh, um, you know, respond to that, except to say that it does encourage me that, of course, although, as you say, um, one would see a a majority of, of white Um, evangelical protestant christians taking those views there are other voices and you know I, i hear them and i read them there are other groups uh within the white evangelical community who speak out and speak up against such things um their voice perhaps needs to be heard more uh or louder that's difficult uh that is in often the way with those who adopt any kind of a prophetic stance is that they will often see, feel themselves to be a minority, and often usually are. Um, and, you know, the kingdom of God does not depend on, on the majority and, 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 and having power. Uh, it's the mustard seeds and the salt and the light uh, and the, the, the prophetic signs of the kingdom uh, that one looks for and says, well, where can we see God is at work um, and, and that I think is where we see the signs of hope, um, and would look to those, and, and ask pray that God would would strengthen their their hand and uh, you know magnify their voices.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you don't talk directly about this in the book, um, and and again I, I may be asking you to give to give an opinion that is uh, outside of of uh, your own experience. But in America, uh, many, many Christians are single issue voters surrounding the issue of abortion. And in in my view, Christians allow a lot of damage to be done by compromising a lot of other values and other pro-life issues in an attempt to mitigate this one issue. And it's a very important issue. Uh, I think we should be completely pro-life. How can Christians look at their political involvement more holistically?
1: Well, that, I think, is, is a big question, and, and the way you ask the question is, is precisely what we need to do, which is to be more holistic and more biblical. And I would agree with you, there's, there's no question in my mind that, um, that the, the kind of scale of abortion that is happening in the Western world, but in the States, but also in, in other parts of Europe and Britain, uh, is, is, is a moral evil. Uh, desperately to be be regretted and stood against and spoken out against. Uh, I, so I, I'm not questioning that. Um, the, the the challenge is, as you put it, when it becomes a single-issue thing, which then gives people uh, blind spots to other areas of, of moral importance to which the Bible gives great attention. Um, I, I mean, I don't want to... I don't want to be trite in any way, but there are some who say, "Well, yes, I'm I'm pro-life too, but I'm I'm pro-life after birth as well as pro-life before birth." You know, it, there is a there are you know, millions upon millions of people who are who are living in situations of of oppression and poverty and suffering, uh, and in a sense, not to be concerned for them or to put the the the, the rightness of their cause somewhere way way down the um, moral scale, almost out of sight seems to me to be contrary to to the emphasis of the Bible um, so all I would say to, to people is you know let's let's be clear of our reading of the Bible and, and, and recognize how much the Bible has to say about God's concern for the marginalized the needy and the poor and the exploited of all sorts um, and 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 bring that higher up our moral scale of values the trouble of course with with politics is that um, You know, there's no such thing, in my opinion anyway, as any pure or totally 100% uh, political position or party that a Christian is likely to agree with, unless it's himself. You know, you (laughs) put yourself up and say, uh, you know, I agree with me, you know, but nearly always there's an element of weighing up in the balances what the position of of particular uh, parties or persons or people in leadership is, what and saying, well, I can agree with more of what they say, and I disagree with with uh, you know, other things that they say. But on balance, I feel that I I have to support this position because the alternative is worse. Sometimes it is a case of choosing the least worst. And I've had many American friends say to me that that was exactly how they felt uh, in recent elections. Um, you know, there's no good uh, <laughs> candidate here, so let's choose the one that's going to do the least least harm. Uh, So I think that's probably the best I can say on that, but I do agree with you that it is easy for evangelical Christians to become one issue or maybe two issues, that that's what they call the moral issues. Mm -hmm. Well, on a biblical scale, I think there are many moral issues, and the issues of justice and poverty and inequality and and, uh, exclusion and so on are very high up on the list of clearly of what God values, because he talks about them so much in the scripture. Mm -hmm including yeah. Jesus, by the way. Uh, I mean, Jesus says that among the weightier matters of the law, he says to the Pharisees, uh, are justice, mercy, uh, you know, and, and faithfulness. So in, in his view, it was a heavy thing as well.
0: Mm-hmm. In, in the last part of the book, and we've, we've kind of already gotten into the meat of the content of that, um, you begin to talk about how we are then to live uh, in this mm. idolatrous world, how we are mm. to separate ourselves from the idols of sex, money, fame, power, whatever, whatever it might be. And specifically you talk about five marks of mission. And I was wondering if you could just go through those. Um, and we we talked a lot about justice uh, already, uh, but the others mm. being uh, a responsibility to creation, evangelism, teaching, and and compassion how Mm. how do we begin to structure how i guess how do we do faith differently if that can be a a correct term to to really begin to live out those marks of mission and what do you think will that change in the way in which the world sees our faith
1: yeah well thank you yes i mean i think what i try to do in the third part of the book very much is to be positive positive. Um, because I didn't want the book simply to be a bigger a, a diatribe, you know, against uh, everybody I don't like sort of thing. Um, I, I, and to say we need to be Bible people, that is, we need to see the whole Bible story and to live it out and be in it and, and take our Bible seriously. We also need to be kingdom people, that is, we need to live by the standards of the kingdom of God, as revealed in both the Old Testament and the teaching of Jesus. Uh, we need to be people of prayer. Uh, very seriously praying the Lord's Prayer, we, we should be praying for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, that's a massively political prayer, mm-hmm. uh, as are so many of the Psalms. You know, so our prayers need to be a bit less anodyne and uh, just you know God bless everybody, and actually praying to God to do something about the evils and injustice in the world, and praying against those who perpetrate them, praying against those who are telling lies and doing injustice. Uh, you know, the Psalms do that; they they plead with God to to you know to put it ready to wake up and do something about these evils in the world and I think our prayers need to be more desperate in that way but in relation to being people of mission, yes um, the so-called five marks of mission actually come out of the uh, the Anglican Communion and as you say they are um, evangelism we, we have to have the centrality of, of the gospel but also uh, teaching and nurturing disciples so there's a there's the work of pastoring and theological education and then there are works of compassion simply showing the love of Jesus going out into the world Uh, and just doing what Jesus did, doing good stuff. Uh, And I'm amazed, by the way, at at the response to the COVID pandemic in some of the poorest parts of the world, and the response to the refugee crisis, for example, in a country like Lebanon, which is uh, a devastated and poor country uh, with huge problems. And yet the Christian churches there have, have reached out sacrificially and incredibly generously to Syrian uh, Muslim refugees who were their enemies uh, years ago and are seeing remarkable fruits in terms of not only people being loved and cared for, but many, many of them come into faith in Jesus simply because Christians have loved them. So there's works of love and compassion. Then, of course, seeking justice, and we've talked about that, and I think the Bible is very clear that that is a mandate, that we are to seek justice. And, fifthly, the fifth mark being the, the responsible use of uh, and care for creation itself which I've called the first great commission that God gave to the human race, um, you know that we were to exercise dominion over the earth by uh, caring for it and keeping it in, in the balance between Genesis chapter 1, uh, where you have um, the, the kingly role of ruling, and Genesis chapter 2, where you have the priestly role of serving and keeping the creation. Um, uh, and so I think um, the, the ro- uh, Christian's role within creation, for Christ's sake, because he is the Lord of heaven and earth, um uh, as he said in the Great Commission, you know, all authority in heaven and earth, that means in the whole creation, is given to him. So we can't really claim to love Jesus or call Jesus Lord if we don't uh, love what belongs to him. And, and the Bible is very clear that the earth is, is, belongs to God. It's his property. Uh, and also he's redeemed it by the blood of his cross, as Paul says in Colossians. So to somehow want to say you love Jesus and you're a Christian and yet deny the importance of ecological and environmental issues that have to do with God's creation it seems to me a very strange position to be in it's like saying that you you know you love your girlfriend uh, but you take her precious guitar and chuck it out the window and stamp on it you know you trash her property and yet you still say you love her well that just don't make sense does it and yet there's a lot of Christians who seem quite happy to say they love Jesus and yet are content to trash his property
0: yeah yeah well, Dr. Wright, I want to thank you for the time that you've taken uh, out of your day to talk with us on the podcast. And for the listeners, again, the book is Hear Your God's Faithful Discipleship in Idolatrous Times, published by InterVarsity Press. Uh, you can go on their website and purchase this, or call your local independent bookstore. I'm sure if they don't have it in stock, they would love to get it for you. Um, Dr. Wright, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you, Josh. Thank you, now. God bless.